Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today, I have Scott Brown, a longtime tech marketer, Seedcamp EIR, and a fanatic of Gordon Ramsay, so much that he's going to be on Gordon Ramsay's Culinary Genius this upcoming August, which by the time this podcast comes, you probably couldn't see it in some, some sort of replay TV. And um, what's really interesting, we'll, we'll get the full story of that, Scott, so sure. hopefully hope you can share that. Yeah. But what's interesting about his background is that because he's been in, in marketing for so long uh, and, and worked at large companies like Google, Facebook, Cisco, Sun, along with many seed camp companies as a EIR, but also a lot of other companies outside of seed camp, um, He's gotten a really interesting perspective on things that happen both in Europe and the U.S., but also late stage marketing and then super early stage marketing. So thanks for joining us. And I, and Absolutely. I hope to get all this wisdom in today's podcast. All this in 40 minutes, right? All this in 40 minutes. So um, let's start off how I normally do on, on these things is a little bit about you. Like what, what, what did you do right after college? What was your first job and how did you get into this whole marketing stuff? Uh, so I think going into that in detail would probably require a lot of alcohol to, Mm. to follow the kind of sordid past. I kind of stumbled into it. So my first job directly out of university was in PR in healthcare PR of all things. Um, and I was still trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do and and ultimately ended up at Northwestern university at their Medill integrated marketing program, which is all about data driven, uh, marketing. And at that point it was still relatively new and we were doing things like, hand calculating ANOVAs and running SPSS and things like that. But that was kind of, in some ways, the precursor of a lot of the growth hacking and things that go on today, which was a good foundation from the, for the logic of uh, how to think that way. And as part of that program, I was lucky enough to be sent to San Francisco during the dot-com bubble and work for Andy Cunningham, uh, who some of you who have seen the Steve Jobs uh, movies, uh, you'll recognize she was the PR woman who launched the Mac. And she had a high-tech marketing consulting firm uh, that was really well known uh, during the, the bubble. And I went to work for her after grad school and ended up working up and down the valley for both big names and small names, many of which no longer exist. But some clients or some people who became future employees like Sun and Cisco and whatnot. And I did marketing consulting and strategy work and then ultimately uh, moved into a variety of different jobs, ended up being uh, Scott McNeely, the chairman and CEO's uh, last uh, communications director before he retired out of Sun and then landed at Cisco to help launch a new media and entertainment startup uh, to help publishers uh, monetize their premium video content, which was an issue that they're still dealing with today. Uh, which led me to go to Google, where I helped relaunch the DoubleClick uh, buy-side platforms as an integrated stack. Uh, learned a lot of interesting things, kind of moved from the publisher side of the world to the buy side of the ad tech world. And then ultimately over to Facebook, uh, where I was lucky enough to run the high-touch customer programs for agencies and advertisers. So having this really kind of broad view of a whole bunch of different marketing channels, uh, all primarily looking at how B2B companies adopt these big platforms. Wow, I mean that's as you said, that is a <laughs> a lot to unpack. But if we go through like each one of these, there's probably a lot of cool anecdotes that have mm-hmm. taught you what we're gonna cover a little later, which is the the sort of what people usually get wrong about marketing. Right. But maybe before we get there, can you walk us through some anecdotes of, of sort of highlights of of lessons learned along that journey of of things where maybe best practices or rules of thumb were broken? 
and and perhaps things did not play out the way that most people expect when they learn what marketing in startups is supposed to be like? Right. So, I mean, I think the first thing to take away is you, you see the public story of how things went at all these big, great companies. And the truth is always a little bit darker or a little bit um, less clear on how we got to that path. But I think one of the big takeaways for me is... Um, you know, the evolution of the marketing practice and the skill set in marketing, what I saw happen at Cisco over about five to seven years took about three years at Google for that same sort of evolution and maturation of the, the marketing org, and then took about 12 to 18 months at Facebook. And I think what that tells me anecdotally is just the practice and infrastructure of marketing is evolving so quickly that in many ways you have to be so focused on what's coming next that you tend to forget about some of the marketing fundamentals, so to speak, because you're trying to run to the next new thing and stay ahead of the curve. Um, and that's a big danger for a lot of companies going forward. Um, I have plenty of anecdotes. Um, just trying to think of what are appropriate for the podcast. Um, but I think one thing I would call out is way back in the day when working with Scott McNeely at Sun, uh, he was considering writing the first blog from a public Fortune 500 company CEO. And I, as his communications director, was really struggling on how to keep up with the volume of keynotes and media coverage and internal comms and things that he did on a regular basis. So at that point, I really started to focus on this notion of what I call economies of content. You've heard of economies of scale and other economic principles of how you leverage things. Uh, and I started building this theory around economies of content that content is relatively expensive to create uh, and distribution was becoming cheaper and still becoming cheaper. And so it becomes this marketing principle of how do you reduce, reuse, and recycle that content across as many channels as you can. Just for the simple fact that their consumers of content today have so many different options on channels that you need to hit them everywhere they live so that they can actually eventually hear you. And about the, about the time that you're absolutely sick of saying that similar message is about the first time somebody in the market will sit up and say, huh, it's really interesting. I've never heard that before. Mm. Uh, and this has been something that I've seen at large companies and small companies. We tend to get fixated on the next new thing uh, or the silver bullet, so to speak. And we try to run from one marketing message or one kind of vision of where we're headed to the next and we have to remember that it takes the market a long time to pick up on that conversation and really begin to understand what we're talking about. So a lot of times it's about consistency uh, and, and delivering that message in every single channel you possibly can. Okay. So how did that play out with something like um, a Facebook versus a Google versus a Cisco? Because you, know, you gave the example of Sun. Yeah. But how did that wisdom, if you will, play out in helping structure the programs that you led in those three other companies? Sure. So I think a great example of that would be most recently at Facebook. Uh, I was lucky enough to help set some of the messaging around their vision for the ads business. Uh, and at the time I came in, um, you know, they had just done like the Oculus acquisition. They had Instagram, which wasn't really monetizing things through ads quite yet. You had Facebook audience network. You had all these disparate pieces. Um, and I was running the executive briefing center there where we were bringing in CMOs and CROs for very large customers and trying to help them understand where we as a business were headed. Uh, and one of the insights that I had was, um, it was like the parable of the five blind men and the elephant, uh, which if you don't know that story, 
It's uh, an old Indian uh, story about how if you've never seen an elephant, you and if you're a blind person, you describe the piece you can touch. So somebody touches the leg is like, oh, it's big and thick like a tree trunk. Or somebody touches the the trunk, uh, the tail says, oh, it's long and thin like a snake. And what we were doing um, is by allowing each of these individual business units to tell their story, we were describing the pieces. But to a CMO or a CRO who's taking the big picture, they want to know what the big elephant looks like. So a lot of that, the learnings, if you will, come from, okay, we need to refocus or shift the perspective of the story we're telling, provide bigger context of what an elephant really looks like, paint the vision for where we're going three to five years from now so that we can rationalize how all these bits and pieces fit together. Uh, and then when we have to make changes in the product or something doesn't work out the way we expect it, it doesn't look like we're doing a hard pivot 90 degrees one way or the other. It becomes more incremental shifts as we're going to this bigger, longer term vision. Mm. It's kind of like the, the Wayne Gretzky, you know, ski to where the puck is going. Mm. Only in this sense, you're kind of telling the market where you're going so that everything you do kind of fits in that context. Mm. Does that require buy-in from the founders? Is that something that you can do independent of that? To some extent, you, these companies that you were involved with towards the end of your career before coming over here to Europe, they're all so big that mm -hmm. how do you have unified ownership to, to determine something like that? Okay, so you've just hit on the key success factor. You have to have internal buy-in and internal alignment, particularly across the executive team, if not with the founders. Um, it is a big red flag for me whenever a founder or a senior exec says, great, tell me what our vision is, right? That's not going to work uh, because you need them invested emotionally in it uh, because this is going to be in some ways a political campaign that they're going to need to talk about for the next 12 to 18 months. And if they're not emotionally invested in that, they're going to get tired of it. They're going to want to shift messages. They're going to do something else. Um, so you absolutely need the, not only the buy-in, but the actual leadership and commitment from the very top to kind of drive this throughout the organization. And then from there, it becomes a marketing operations kind of discussion about how do I flow these messages into everything that we're doing, into every channel, and how do I repurpose this to, again, kind of build momentum over time around a singular concept or vision. So that sounds like a phoenix rising moment where it's risen from the ashes of a dead marketing strategy led by the founder. You come in, you clean it up. It sounds like it's pieced back together in a way that might have been when the founder had originally worked on marketing and something went wrong along the way. Walk us through where things go wrong along the way when a company's scaling up. I mean, right. you've been in different stages of companies. How do these things devolve into the state that you usually find them when you get hired in? Um, so that's really interesting. And, and actually, people always um, point out that I've been at some fairly large, very successful companies. Um, but what I point out to them is every business unit that I've come into in those uh, have been exactly in that position you just outlined, where there's some piece of the puzzle that is no longer working or some problem that needs to be solved and kind of put back on the same track. Um, I think a couple things happen. One is... People lose sight of the longer-term vision um, because they haven't well-documented, if you will, and shared that across the entire organization about here's where we're going and here's why. And some of that may be for strategic reasons in terms of I can't share that or it's not public information or I don't want to give the competitors too much of a view on what's going on. Um, but what happens if you don't share that long-term here's where we're going story then all the incremental little shifts that happen along the way kind of take you off course. 
Um, and I think one way that people can stay uh, more aligned to their long-term vision is by aligning their company with some bigger, broader social or economic trend that gives context for why you exist. Um, and I guess another way that I see people get off track is they always think that the founder or the senior executives needs to be synonymous with the company. And, and I fundamentally disagree with that notion. I believe you should use those two entities, if you will, as a one-two punch. The executive or the founder as an individual can say things a company can never say. They can have opinions. They can make forward-looking statements. They can be uh, slightly more aggressive about goals and things like that. Whereas the company, whenever they say something, you really need to stand behind your brand promise and deliver. So if the executive can set that bigger picture, here's where we're going, here's why we exist, then the company can come along and say, here's how we're going to execute on that. Mm. And I think a lot of times, especially with earlier stage startups, people conflate those two things. Mm. And then when presumably those things start falling apart, they start falling apart because there's fast growth of hiring, there's delegation of that, and then there's poor communication between the founder executive team and those people, and then slowly it devolves into a series of individual units kind of dealing with their individual product lines. Is that kind of what you've experienced? It's exactly what I've experienced. And there's this wave of kind of uh, centralization of that function and that vision and that story, and then decentralizing as the company grows. And then you see everybody realize, oh my gosh, we've kind of lost our way. We need to re-centralize, which brings apart uh, about its own issues. Mm. And so you get this constant like waves of consolidation and disruption, which is kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about what I saw at Cisco, Google, and Facebook is those kind of alternating waves of consolidation and disruption are becoming much closer and closer, very tight. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of these marketing orgs um, change their direction within a 12-month period mm. uh, just because they're responding to the market. New technologies are coming out, new capabilities are happening, and you have to be that nimble. Mm. Okay, so then let's, let's, let's bring it now back to what you call the marketing fundamentals. I think the, the challenge with interviewing anybody who's done marketing as long as you have is that you know it's easy to devolve into specific strategies that right. people want to apply for their individual circumstances. You know, how do I get more viral growth? Or how to get this? And they lose sight of the big picture. So mm -hmm. like, let's take 500 steps back, start from the big picture, walk us through Scott Brown's law of marketing fundamentals. Law number one, go. Oh, I wish I had a law. These are, these are more like back of the envelope guidelines. Yes. Um, but so let me take a one step back, especially working with a lot of the founders here in London recently. It's been interesting. A lot of them have said, I don't need marketing. Right. They, they, they kind of come out of the gates a bit strong on me uh, with that. And they say, I don't need marketing. But as I've talked to them, what I'm finding is more and more the issues that are higher top of mind, growth, product market fit, things like that, all could really benefit from having some of these marketing muscles and marketing fundamentals. So in many ways, I've found myself going back all the way to marketing 101, where it's like, look, have a good sense of who your customer actually is. And um, as you probably know from our time working together, I am not kind of a woo-woo, fluffy kind of marketer. Um, but the number one thing I found myself recommending to founders recently is go back, write customer personas. Document it so that you can 
to your earlier point, share that across your team and say, these are the types of customers we really, really want to go after and here's why. That's going to not only give you a good sense of who you're targeting, but it also gives you something to test against. So you can test and iterate and add color commentary to it as you go. Um, and I, by the way, I always recommend to people, you uh, write those personas over a single bottle of wine or your favorite spirit, um, just so that you don't get into this kind of analysis paralysis and assume I have to have this perfect, beautiful persona. You want to do this so you have an operating model that you can share across your sales, your marketing, your product teams to say, here's a common view of the customer. Um, and oh, by the way, um, you should also think about writing a persona for your anti-customer, mm -hmm. the person you absolutely do not want to be using your product or service. So that, again, it gives you a sense of what do I need to do to attract the right person and not attract the wrong person. Mm -hmm. um, from there, you know, it really does get to be a bit more specific to every circumstance. But the other thing I see people forgetting about a lot is building the basic marketing infrastructure. Find a way to have a CRM or some mechanism that you can start collecting customer information. Because when you actually get somebody aware and interested enough in your product that they send you an email or provide some information about them, you damn well better be able to capture that so you can use it later and engage them in the conversation going forward. Uh, because once you have that baseline infrastructure, then you can bolt on top of it all the whiz-bang things that everybody wants to talk about. The marketing automation suites, the email services, the scoring techniques, all that. But if it's built on a bad core, you're going to have the garbage in, garbage out uh, kind of scenario. Um, and from there, um, you know, I think the third law, I would say, is write everything down. Um, it seems really simple. But I run into a lot of startups who are trying some really interesting, innovative marketing things. But because they never document, here's the experiment I'm going to run. Here's my hypothesis. Here's how I'm going to measure success. They tend to create these gaps in their logic. And then they can't go back and either replicate what they did before or understand why something didn't work. And so it's how do you document it so you can create a series of rational experiments until you find something that works and then you put all of your money and resources behind it and you scale large. Hmm. So the three laws, go back to the roots, identify customer personas, two, build basic marketing infrastructure, and three, write everything down, document experiments. Those are three laws of Scott Brown. Yes. You should be in marketing. That's great packaging. Great. Uh, awesome. I think I kind of sort of am. Yeah, yeah, you are. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's look at how you have seen that play out in UK companies versus US companies. Yeah. You had mentioned that you had worked with both and yeah. that you noticed some differences in, in maybe attitudes. What what do those attitudes do to at the macro level? I mean, you know, I assume that people around the world are all equally smart. So is it circumstantial? Is it uh, geopolitical? What is it? It's a great question. And I'm guessing it's mostly uh, location-based and the community that you're surrounded uh, by is one of the things uh, that has been very refreshing um, as I've moved out here to London um, and, and focus more on kind of the startup community and just trying to understand how London tech is very different than Silicon Valley tech is um, one of the big differences with the London founders is they seem very focused on solving pragmatic issues that there's a clear market need and in many ways they're more focused on solving that particular issue than they are on getting rich. 
And I think one of the things I've seen recently in Silicon Valley is you have a lot of people who are there to make money first and solve problems second. Um, and it wasn't really something that I had thought about until I had been here about six months and kind of saw the recurring themes. Um, and in many ways, I would say that London has all the good cultural characteristics that we had back in the dot-com bubble days, where in the early uh, sense it was what can this technology do to solve a, a certain market or customer problem mm-hmm. obviously things got very frothy and everyone started chasing the dollars uh, but more and more at least recently in silicon valley i've seen more people moving there just because they see the big salaries they see the the free goodies in the micro kitchens they see the t-shirts and the swag and read the stories in the wall street journal and everything else and it's almost that they're being attracted for the wrong reasons and why i think that's fascinating for marketers in London is in many ways we need to convince founders that they can be a little more forward-looking, take a little bit more credit for these bigger um, trends and position their companies in relation to the bigger market. Um, Because there's the saying in Silicon Valley, you know, you fake it till you make it. And in many ways, I would say U.S. tech companies are doing that far too much uh, in in releasing vaporware um, instead of actually solving some of the problems. And I would say the many of the startups I've been working with here in London, it's the reverse. They're being too humble. Uh, and I won't say they need to be braggarts, but you need to paint yourself in the bigger context of what's happening in the market. I don't know. What, you, you've experienced both markets as well. What, what's your take on it? It's tricky. It's tricky. <laughs> but, the, you know, I can interview myself later. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, that's a cheap uh, way of getting out of answering that question. <laughs> I, what's interesting about your answer and the one from before is some of it comes from the culture in a company, mm-hmm. the, the sort of the DNA. So, for example, uh, you described the anti-persona for a customer. You talked a little bit about documenting experiments. What is it that you've noticed that founders in the UK versus the US have in terms of defining the culture of their business such that you have content to work with or, or, or values to work with or vision to work with as a marketeer to then be able to help them craft the people they're not keen on mm-hmm. being involved with or in understanding what kinds of experiments to prioritize. And can you do that without having a very clear view of what the vision of the company is? And, and, and is the first job of, a, of, of somebody like you in helping them clarify that because everything stems from that? Yes. Yes, yes. So um, there's a lot in your question to kind of unpack. Um, And and I would take it back to one of the questions I'm asked quite frequently, which is, um, do I need to hire a senior marketer or or do I hire more of a junior uh, kind of executor? And I would argue that in many ways you need to get the advice and counsel of a more senior go-to-market individual who can help you ask those five whys, you know, the classic sense of breaking down why are you exactly doing what you are so you can get to that clear vision and clear notion of what is a priority, what customer you're solving it for and what they're actually um, really going to see of value in your service. And once you have that clarity of vision and that clarity of, of your value prop and everything else, then you don't need that senior marketer for a while. You need to put it to a more junior person or vendors or outsourced to freelancers, but using that kind of uh, common touchstone documents that you have written down 
that you have your clear idea of who your customers are and you give it to people and you, you just start getting stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you try and you test and you iterate until you really need to start scaling your marketing function. The tricky thing is that it sounds like from what you said earlier that European startups would benefit from having a senior person come in and help them make sure that all those things that are sort of step one mm-hmm. are are well thought through, organized, and structured so that you can then create derivative works from that. Yeah. But the problem is that the people who are in charge of self-assessing that seem not to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. So you would never go and actively look for that kind of individual. Hence why you're getting constantly these, these statements of, I don't think I need somebody right. in marketing. So sort of faced with that circularity, because it's kind of what it is. You need it, but you don't know you need it. So you need it, but you don't know you need it. Right. How is it that you best advise um, a startup to maybe start tackling the problem of deducing that need on their own? Is there like a series of questions? I mean, you said five whys, but is there a series yeah. of questions that maybe it's like an honesty test that people can look at them themselves and be like, actually, you know what? We're really deficient in this area. And, and the only way it's going to get solved is by somebody with maybe your seniority coming in and helping me organize it. You know, I'm sure there is. I'm sure we could actually brainstorm it right here, right now. Um, but what I have found to be the number one trigger is, you know, have you written these things down? Like, do you actually have a plan in place or have you documented who your customers are? Because if the answer is no, then it kicks off a whole series of conversations. Um, and uh, it should point out, like, founders, wicked smart, especially the seed camp founders. Um, but they know this it's intuitively in their head it's a matter of pulling that out and putting it into a framework that other people can buy into and help support so if you haven't written it down that's a red flag for me that you haven't done a good job of telling everyone else what the journey is that we're on so then it becomes a series of questions starting with okay what's the problem you're really solving who are you solving it for how will they know that they actually need it solved? Like what is the value and how will they appreciate that you're actually delivering that value to them? And then ultimately it is who else could do this or what other um, kind of products or services or um, fungible goods could deliver the same sort of value. Okay. If I'm looking at it from the B2C company point of view, I could see where I would be able to extrapolate that either early or kind of midway through. But for the B2B companies, especially those with slow sales cycles, how do you even engage? I mean, I can think of two or three companies in our portfolio that I'm thinking through are struggling with answering those questions because the sales cycle is like six, seven months. Right. And they don't know whether that's that proof of concept is the actual customer that they would like at the end of that proof of concept. Yeah. So how do you help them? How would you help them sort of organize what needs to be part of a, a foundation for later marketing mm-hmm. when all these elements kind of are, are, are combining against them? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely that transitionary period where you don't have the wealth of data and experience yet, and you're still playing with hypotheses. Then I would still argue that it is developing those discrete hypotheses and going and running tests against it to see what kind of traction you're getting. Um, But ultimately, I think uh, I'm a B2B marketer. I love B2B marketing, even though people tend to not think it's so sexy. Mm. And, And one of the reasons I'm so excited about it is because of the wealth of data that you can get. Um, about your customers and begin to build that um, build on your view of the customer and what you're actually delivering. Um, and people tend to, especially at early stage, you tend to forget 
that you're sitting on top of this wealth of data. So you can go back and do things like segmenting your existing customer database and trying to understand if there are meaningful differences across audiences. And are we actually seeing a different type of customer being higher value than what we originally thought? And again, matching it back to some of the personas, if you're like, this is what the value I think this customer set will deliver or the value to our firm, and it's not matching to what you're seeing in your database, well, then it's time to come up with a different notion of what you need to go work against. Hmm. And I think one of my favorite quotes, uh, at least quotes of the summer that I've been sharing, is um, Dwight Eisenhower's comment about uh, planning the D-Day invasion, which was, look, plans are useless. Planning is everything. And the whole notion behind that is a written document is not going to save the day. But it is the act of going through that with your leadership team, with your experts and everything else to put down what you think is going to happen that will have the most value when things go sideways. And you can say, okay, we thought the levers for success were A, B, and Z. They turn out to be something different. Do we need to scrap everything and restart? Or is there something in here we can save to keep the mission moving forward? Mm. Okay, so I could... I could put myself in the shoes of a founder who's listening to you right now and thinking, okay, got it. I see where I might have a deficiency here. I could see where like my output for what you just requested isn't as good or solid as it could be. I need help. And I'm now talking to candidates and candidates range everything from somebody who did marketing in a startup that was probably series A and is now looking for a new job, everything to another Scott Brown Mark II. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges that the most all founders feel when they look at somebody with your CV, um, and and this is kind of funny because I'm going to tease on, I'm going to tease you a little bit, but but at the same time I'm hoping to get a good answer for this. Is hey, this guy's too corporate. Like uh-huh. he doesn't understand startup world, and one of the risks we run is that he'll be too decoupled from the start the challenges of the startup. Not only that, he'll expect to have like a team doing all the stuff for him, and he won't do it himself. Right. So. If you had to clarify that misconception somehow, or you could, you know, you could say, yeah, that's true. Um, but I, 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 I assume that you're not going to say that's true. No. But if, but if you, if you had to give clarity to a founder about how to do, you know, if, if they have come to the terms that they need that external help, what does that person look like? How can they assess that person? What things they should be fearful of and things they shouldn't be fearful mm-hmm. of to make the right call? So I think every situation is going to be different. Um, But one of the ways I describe myself, having worked across a variety of different marketing channels uh, from brand strategy to PR to hardcore go-to-market or product marketing, um, is I describe myself as the Swiss Army knife of marketing backgrounds. So I can get in there and get my hands dirty, diagnose a problem, and identify the first hundred steps to get us out of it. But if you need just demand generation or you need just growth hacking, right, you need to go get that expert. And I think one of the things that founders and executive teams need to really look at is figuring out what the problem is that they're really trying to solve for. Do they need a general purpose um, executive, if you will, who knows enough about these areas that they can get things started or hire the right people or at least keep the ball rolling for the, the near term? Um, versus I need a specialist to do a particular thing. Mm -hmm. And so that diagnosis, I think, comes probably with a conversation amongst the leadership team or maybe with a more senior executive. But, I I mean, I know I've told various founders and whatever, you don't need to hire me, right? We, We need to sit down, 
have coffee a couple times, um, sketch some things out, and I can point you to people, but you don't need to hire a CMO or a VP of marketing. Go go find people to solve these particular problems because at your stage, you're not quite there yet. Um, and I think that that's where, again, having some notion of a plan written down lets you know when you get to a point where you're getting diminishing returns by solving point problems versus trying to start integrating everything. Again, pulling things back to my Facebook example of where we had the five blind men and the elephant with the ads vision, at that point, each of those businesses had a great growth path by themselves. And it wasn't until we needed to start pulling this together to start selling to much larger enterprises that it was like, okay, now we need to um, integrate and align all of these different groups to have a common vision on where we're going but still allowing them to have the flexibility of saying, okay, here's how Instagram fits in, or here's how Oculus fits into the bigger vision and working through it. Hmm. All right. Well, one of the things that you had mentioned uh, in the chat we were having earlier, mm. is that you believe that the nature of marketing is going to continue to change. Yes. And you, you had some, you shared with me some ideas around the next phase of marketing. Maybe you can walk us through those. Yeah. So, I was lucky enough, um, actually both at Google and Facebook, to be on teams looking at this notion of the future of marketing. Um, just because the products that we were selling were ad tech uh, related platforms, helping CMOs think about well, what's coming next and how do I become a good trusted business partner to you and helping you think through the challenges um, you face in your business. And one of the things that I was surprised to find when we talked to large company CMOs is nobody kind of disagrees about the future of marketing, that it is going to be increasingly scaled, increasingly digital, increasingly personalized. They all agree, great, five to 10 years, I know what it's going to look like. The challenge that I'm facing today is how do I get there? Because the pace of change is too rapid. Um, and that actually led me to stumble across um, this economist by the name of Carletta Perez, who's got this um, socio-technology adoption theory about how technology waves go through kind of an innovation disruption phase and then the broad scale adoption and how it impacts society and everything else. And her notion, which she kind of tracks back to all the way to like the steam engine and everything else is those waves of disruption and then building out the infrastructure used to take 40 to 75 years to happen. And what we're having happen now is these waves are coming faster and faster. And I think if you apply that to the marketing world, you see CMOs who are sitting here saying, hey, I just figured out this online thing, and now you're hitting me with mobile, and now you're hitting me with social, and now you're hitting me with programmatic advertising. And these waves are coming every 12 to 18 months. And it's very difficult if you're sitting over a large staff on, ex on old systems, old meaning, frankly, anything older than 12 months ago, and how do I culturally and organizationally move all these skills and these people and these success metrics and everything else that we have in place to this new way of doing things. And so that's where in many ways I come back to my belief on marketing fundamentals, because I think if you can go back and nail what's the customer, what's the customer journey I want to take them on and how do I integrate all my various investments to make sure I'm moving that along, you'll be in a much better place than if you start trying to solve the next issue or the next new technology that somebody throws out at you. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's it's almost kind of like by keeping sight of the big picture, you're hopefully adapting to all these micro changes 
and then just tweaking how you use them according to what your overall macro objectives are. Right. So maybe this is a good point to sort of go back on, on an area we skipped over. Um, the first one is infrastructure. So you mentioned mm-hmm. get your infrastructure basics, you know, as, after you've had the persona. So the second law, yeah, if yeah. you will. What, what is the best way to think about infrastructure then in an ever-changing world? What, what is the minimum infrastructure that you should have? It's, all, it's almost like in a world where infrastructure itself is always changing. Right. Then well, what is the infrastructure you should rely on when you start? And then what is the pace of, of, of change that you should expect? And what are the elements that you need to lock down and just kind of commit to? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, I think, one of the most difficult questions to answer. Um, I mean, frankly, that is the question every one of your companies has asked me is like, what insert blank here, CRM, email automation, whatever tool should I be using? And I think it is very, um, it's very situational on that individual company. But what is very clear is you have to have a good system of record for collecting all the customer information, whether that be Salesforce or HubSpot or any sort of CRM system, but you've got to have that common view. And one of the things that we were chatting about before we turned on the mic was um, data hygiene is not an issue that just startups have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been in some of the largest companies in the world and they've got data hygiene issues um, all the time. And it is one of these things you have to constantly work at and constantly be on top of so that you don't have the garbage in garbage out scenario, but have that system of record and then build on top of it whatever it is you need for your situation. It may be getting best of breed um, applications to put on top of that CRM. It could be building, I hate to say it, but silos of functionality just so that you can move quickly to solve a certain point solution. But I think that's where, again, the development, the act of going through the planning process to identify what do we need to do and how do we need to do it will answer, okay, what piece of infrastructure do I need to go get? Okay. So that you don't like, I mean, I would never tell somebody go hire a full marketing department or go get as much of the Salesforce license as you possibly can or buy everything in HubSpot because you probably don't need that fully integrated, full function, multi-channel approach today. So be rational about it and figure out what you need to implement when. Okay. So the answer makes sense. Although if I were the one that asked you that question for our own use, I think I would still be a bit fearful of, of whether or not um, I know what, what infrastructure to pick from your answer. So maybe I'll ask a different one. Let's pre- pretend a second that I took your answer as directional, not mm. specific, and yep. I had narrowed it down as best I could to two or three different options. What is the average duration of commitment towards any one platform before you reconsider migrating onto a different one because you've outgrown it. Yeah. Um, I wish I, again, I feel like I'm dodging all the the, uh, (laughs) answers to your questions. Um, But, you know, like one of the startups I've been helping for the last year um, has switched major platforms three times in about two years. Yeah. That is far too frequent. Like they did something wrong in terms of figuring out what they exactly needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've talked to some who are like lingering on platforms that it's, it's very clear that they have outgrown and just the cost of migration is keeping them from moving on to the next new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you really have to monitor that and figure out like, 
your KPIs or your success metrics are going to tell you when you're hitting that organizational friction. Um, and it, I, I think with marketing, especially in the startup world, it's really tough because you get this kind of stepwise next level of growth. And it's a huge investment in resources and budget and things like that to go to the next level. And it's not a nice, even curve. Mm. And so it can be very difficult when you're looking at your balance sheet mm. or your growth plans to say, okay, well next year I need to hire three marketers mm-hmm. and I need a Salesforce administrator and I need all of these things because sometimes that's what you really need to grow, but it can be hard to convince yourself that that's what you need. Mm. Um, you know, going back to this question you asked me about, like you're too corporate, um, I I think got the compliment from one of your companies. They're like, after a consulting conversation with them, they said, oh my gosh, you're a cloud and dirt marketer. And I was like, well, what do you mean by that? Like, I've, I've done some SaaS cloud stuff, but like, what's the dirt part? They're like, no, no, you're the high level vision. Here's what we need to be doing. Here's how we need to culturally align and get things together. But then you're at the dirt level of, okay, well, we need to go find systems or pieces of infrastructure to go be able to deliver it. Mm. And I think the real magic of marketing in the future will become, how do you bring the cloud and the dirt closer together? Because it's in that middle area that things get really messy and you Mm. can kind of lose your way and lose track on what the vision and shared purpose is. Mm. And that's where your marketing leadership really comes in. Mm. And it's just a question in some, some ways, like how much chaos and ambiguity can you allow happen in that middle layer Mm. until you know, you need to go hire some leadership to go do it Mm. and clarify it. That's a very good answer. Um, I'm working on it. Yeah. No, it's very good. Very useful. Uh, If I look at, Back to the fundamentals again. I'll ask another question that might be a bit thick, um, but I think people always mix these terms together. Maybe you can just kind of dispel a myth. What is the difference in your mind between marketing, branding, positioning? How would you differentiate between those three? So I would put marketing as the writ large culmination of all outbound and frankly inbound activities around the customer. So branding and positioning, I think, are both subsets within marketing. Um, and I think branding is a tactical uh, manifestation of a lot of what your your company and your products stand for. It is the a lot of the times the visual identity, the tone, the voice, the personality that you're trying to per- portray. And the positioning is the more uh, contextual or um, written form of what you, your brand needs to be about. If I, if I were to challenge that statement and ask you whether or not you would agree with somebody who says, actually, no, marketing is underneath the umbrella of branding and that mm-hmm. branding represents the relationship with the customer, that mm-hmm. it represents the personality of the founders in relation to that customer. And then everything else derives from that. Would you would you agree with that? Would you say that? Well, that could also be true, or would you be like, no, actually, this is why marketing is that other one. Well, I think it depends on how you define branding, right? Because a lot of times when people say brand, they're thinking about the visual components of things, and that's that's where I was tending to go with my answer. Yeah. Um, and again, sharing a story from one of the startups that I've been working with, they were very clear and have a very good idea of their their brand manifestation. It's a beautiful kind of system that they've implemented. Everything is glossy. It's, you know, it's really well done. And yet, as I was working with them and I'm seeing people ping them on their like Facebook Messenger um, system and on their pages and things like that, and people are complaining about the experience they're having with the product, 
And the founder's response was, well, we just don't really pay attention to those things because it's a few people on Facebook. And I would argue, okay, you think you have this really amazing brand because everything fits together neatly and it's beautiful. And yet you're not living up to the promise of your brand by engaging the customers that you have on in an honest dialogue. Um, and so I, I don't know that I would disagree with you in terms of the semantics of is it branding or is it marketing? But I think what I would argue is that whatever you call it, your focus needs to be on how are you creating a conversation in the market that continues after you have left the room, right? Because if you're just there on your bully pulpit shouting about how you're the best thing ever, when you leave the room, you haven't really done, a, I think, a good job of creating marketing. You've done a good job of advertising and, and kind of getting in front of people maybe, but you haven't created that kind of synergistic push and pull uh, that you get when you engage the market. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks for that. Now, uh, I want to ask you a couple of, uh, of fun questions just to conclude. What's left on your bucket list? Oh, living in Europe for another three to five years. Really? All right. Well, you can always come back. I get, well, we're working on it. We're working on it. And what's one superpower you wish you could have and why? Mm. Um, being able to read people and their emotions. Mm. Um, I tend to be uh, an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs, so um, I am immediately jumping to conclusions and trying to interpret and... I think being able to take that step back and really understand where people are coming from would be immensely valuable to mm. me personally. Maybe yeah. I'm just being selfish, but yeah, that would be a good skill. That would be a good, there's a Star Trek character that does that. There is. Yeah. Uh, I've heard you're very yeah. good at reading people. No, no, no. Yeah. it's uh, not nearly as good as other people, but I agree. It's a great, it's a great skill to have. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, I would say it was probably from my dad who told me to smile and they think they'll, they think you'll know what you're doing. And it gets back to a bit of this notion of fake it till you make it. Mm. Everybody has a bit of imposter syndrome feelings and stuff, but you know what? A lot of people out there are good, competent people. And if you just smile and work your way through it, people will give you the leeway to figure things out. Does that work across cultures? How does that work in Japan? <laughs> I have not. Uh, I have not tried this theory uh, in Asia quite yet. But um, no, I think it's uh, a little bit of it is just don't doubt yourself as much and get in there and start doing stuff. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Scott. It was a great fun and lots of good wisdom there. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat. Cool. Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.